Okay. Has everybody got one of these guys? Everyone? Okay. Uh, for those of you that haven't been with you with us, uh, this is a uh, we're having some training for the launch team, and we've been talking recently about what it means to join the church. And in our particular denomination, the PCA, um, you, uh, we ask folks that join the church to take vows, which are promises that you're making as a member of the church. And uh, if you look at the handout I've given you, four of them are on the top. There are actually five. Uh, we've been going over these each week, and we've gotten through the third one, and we're moving to the fourth one today. And so uh, we are going to take a look at that, but I do need my Bible. Hold on. I'll use my thing here. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew 28. That's where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 28. If you're not familiar with where that is, Matthew is in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament, and this is the last chapter of the book. And we're going to look at the very last few verses of that chapter. So, um, if you will, let me pray for us, and then we'll talk for just a minute. Let me pray. Uh, Father, uh, we are grateful again for letting us gather together. Thank you so much for Paul's sermon and for the encouragement to know your love, to see the depths of your kindness as our Father. I pray that you would help us to dwell on that this week and that you would shape us uh, to be uh, more and more in love with you because of the way you've loved us. Uh, please come now and help us, Father, as we think through this vow and think through what it means to be um, a member at this church and help us to take that seriously, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, what I want to do to start with is to read the fourth vow for you. All right, this one may sound weird, but it is... Uh, in bold on your sheet, and it says this. It says, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? All right. uh, that sounds uh, very short, uh, but there it is loaded. All right. And so I want to talk a bit about this today. I'm going to try my hardest to get through all this in about 15 minutes or so. If I don't, we'll just pick it up next week. Okay, that's going to be my approach. So, um, first of all, Matthew 28. If you'll go there with me, we're going to start um, in verse 16. This is the last section of Matthew. And this is after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he appears to his disciples. And this is what it says, starting in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, remember one of them, Judas, had committed suicide. He was the one who betrayed Jesus. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when he saw them, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I can't help but think that the folks who wrote these vows had this in mind when they wrote this vow because you see both these things happening. The disciples see Jesus after he's been raised from the dead and what does it say they do when they see him? It says they worshiped him. Even though some of them doubted, they worshiped him. Okay? And then Jesus turns around and gives them the mission of the church, which is to make disciples, right? And in those two, in, in this one passage, we see the worship and the work, okay? 
we see uh, worshiping Jesus and the work that comes from knowing Jesus and following him in our lives. And so um, to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about that. The first consideration that I've got here for you is that worship and work of the church are intricately tied together. I don't want you to think about them as separate things. Like sometimes we worship, sometimes we work, but that they're tied together in the life of the church. Um, Our worship leads to our work, and our work leads to our worship. I'll say it this way. I'm going to draw a little bit for you again, if that's okay. Um, This is pretty simple. Uh, We're going to refer back to this. You have worship, you have work, okay? And basically what happens is as we adore Jesus and know him, and learn more about him and grow into him as we love him, that will inevitably lead you to work, to wanting to do for him, to wanting to live your life for him, to follow him, all right? And this is the other part, though, is that as you live your life for Jesus and you follow him and you learn about him as you follow him, inevitably your work will lead back to more worship, okay? Um, John Piper writes this in his book on mission. It's one of his more famous quotes. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. I'll say that again. Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, part of us sharing our faith, part of us spreading the gospel, our work as a church to make disciples is because we want more people to worship Jesus. You got it? That makes sense? Like, we want that to happen because it's been such a pronounced and powerful thing in our own lives. We want other people to do that. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So as we think about worship and work, I want you to think about them. uh, Maybe one way to illustrate this would be to think about them like breath. You breathe in, okay? The oxygen comes into your lungs, okay? It is, that is what it's like to worship. We are drawing in from Jesus. We are worshiping him, adoring him. Uh, Our lives are being changed as we grow, as he becomes more part of our lives. But every time you breathe in, what else do you have to do? You have to breathe out, okay? I want you to think of that maybe as the work that we do as the church, as our mission to make disciples in the world. They're both what we're consistently doing as the church, breathing in through worship, breathing out as we work. They're tied together. Um, Some people might describe it this way, that like the saints gather together to worship God, and then they scatter out on their mission, which is to make disciples. So it's that once again, we gather together, we scatter out. That's the picture here. And so worship and work intricately tied together. All right, so I want to talk a bit about each one um, as we go. First of all, worship. Worship is simply defined, we talked about this in our core group time together. For those of you that weren't in the core group, I'll be glad to send you the talk on this. But worship is simply defined as the adoration of God, all right? Adoring him, affection for God in your life. And our worship leads to our work, just as we said before. It's our design to be worshipers, all right? That may sound weird to you. Um, But I want to spend a little bit of time today demonstrating that for you and talking about um, how that can be hard and it can also be good. Um, Worship is our design. What does it mean to worship God? We'll start with God, okay? It means to declare his or to ascribe his worth, okay? Uh, Some people could, you could actually translate the word worship, worth 
ship. It is the declaration of value of something, that you think something really is matters deeply and is important to you, okay? And um, I've given you sort of two ways to think about that. Worth, ascribing ultimate worth or value to something, remembering how much something matters to you, but also giving your affection to that thing. In, in the Christian faith, uh, ascribing value and worth is to God. We remember God's goodness to us as we gather together. But we also give our affection to God in our repenting. So when we sing and pray and whatnot, we are ascribing God, we're saying, God, you, you matter. You're the most important thing. You matter the most to us. It is a, a repositioning God in the center of our lives, okay? Whereas we leave here and we scatter out, it's, our temptation is going to be to let other things matter more to us. Uh, this is a recentering of him, our worship time together. Now, worshiping things other than God is what we call idolatry, I think you've, some, most of you have heard that term before. And the church's job is to subvert, I don't know if you know, that, that word means to undermine. Okay, to undermine idols that we see in the world and to persuade people to worship the right thing, God himself. All right? um, I want to demonstrate this to you by talking, telling you a little bit about an Old Testament uh, idolatry uh, a pattern of idolatry that a seminary professor shared with me once that has really stuck that I think is very helpful in our day-to-day lives. Um, this guy, was, his name is John Currid. He was my Old Testament professor uh, in seminary. And he used to talk about worship of the wrong things or idolatry in the Old Testament as having sort of three stages, all right? The first stage is what I'm just going to call uh, general worship. And that is that uh, you love something more than God. There's something in your life that you're putting in a higher position than it should be, that you care more about it than you should, and it's taking, it's slowly taking God's place in your heart, right? And this could be all sorts of things, right? It can be um, a relationship with someone. It could be money. It could be sex. Uh, it could be uh, addiction. It could be even more substantive things like comfort or power or control. Those things matter to you more than God over time, all right? And the first thing that happens is that those things become elevated. They have a higher place in our life than they normally do. But then the second thing that courage says happens is that we start to um, become like the idol, all right? We become like it. Um, an example of this is you remember when you were in junior high? Some of you were in junior high. And there are people that like were cool, right? And you idolized them, right? And they walked a certain way, talked a certain way, dressed a certain way. And after a period of time, you would start doing that, right? You would start dressing like them, talking like them, acting like them to be accepted, to feel good. And it's because they were elevated to a point higher than they should have been. And now you're starting to become like them. You start idolizing them is the word that we use, right? And then the third pattern that happens is that um, the idol begins to destroy us. That seems uh, a little strong, doesn't it? (laughs) But But this is what happens. What I mean by the idol destroying us is that as we love the idol more than we should, 
as we start becoming more like the idol, we are becoming less ourselves. Our own personalities begin to diminish. We begin to change. We become something totally different, right? Um, I'll give you, I'm going to give you an, an illustration of this, and I'm going to give you an, an example of this and how it works in life. Illustration. The, probably the greatest illustration of idolatry in literature is Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. Okay, I'm assuming most of you have either read or seen the movies or something, but Gollum was a creature sort of like a little human to begin with, like a little hobbit-type human. He was normal, and he finds this ring, and the ring has this seductive power on him where it, he begins to want it more than anything else, right? He, he, he craves the ring. He wants to be around it all the time. And this ring is magic. It's evil. And it's corrupting him and, and tempting him all the time just to hold it closest to anything else. And suddenly, um, uh, the, the ring begins to change Gollum, and Gollum starts doing evil things. He kills his brother in order to keep the ring. Um, he becomes this sort of evil character that will do anything to keep it for himself, right? He changes. He starts becoming like the idol, like this evil ring. And then the idol begins to destroy him. He completely changes. Like in the end of the book, he doesn't even look like a person anymore. He's this gross, uh, diminished being that only thinks and only cares about his precious, the ring, right? And that's an illustration of what happens to us when we love things more than we should, all right? Um, an example of it, I'll use an example of sex, okay? Um, people uh, become seduced by sex. They think about it all the time. It becomes something that matters to them more than they should. And over time, they start becoming like the idol. What does that mean? Well, they become overly sexualized. They're thinking about sex. They're watching sex they're availing themselves to it all the time. They start objectifying people of the opposite gender because they think about them only sexually. Um, it becomes, it takes over the way they think and they are as a person. And eventually, it, the sex becomes this highly loved thing in their life and they're becoming less and less what they were. Right? That's what idolatry does to you. All right? It destroys us in this way. But think about this. Um, Think about what this is like when we worship God, all right? We worship him, we, we place him on the throne as the center of our lives, and then we start becoming like him, right? Which is what we're supposed to be like, right? We're, we're made to be like God. We're created in his image. We're redeemed into his image. You start exemplifying things like Love for other people, sacrificing yourself for other people's needs. Uh, you for them rather than them for you in the way that you approach life. Um, you become softer and kinder. You, you begin to be a person of grace and mercy as opposed to a, a person that is hardened and wants only his or her way. And then, whereas the idol destroys us, worshiping God makes us what we're meant to be. Right? You begin to flourish and change and have this joy in your life that wasn't there before. So, um, worshiping things other than God is idolatry, and the church's job is to show people that this happens when they worship the wrong thing. I want you to see it, all right? Um, 
Tim Keller says this about idols, which I think is one of the most helpful things to realize as we talk about this in the church, is that idols are not, uh, what's the way he says it? Idols aren't removed. Idols are replaced. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. Is constantly making these things. Like you move from like, I love this thing too much to oh, I'm a little bored. Now I love this thing too much. Oh, I'm a little bored. I love this thing too much. We're constantly moving to the next thing. We're just replacing them, right? And so what has to happen is our hearts have to have an affection for something more than the thing that we love that will truly satisfy us. And I want to submit to you the only thing that can do that is God. The one true God. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And so we're subverting idols, convincing people that loving the wrong things will get them nowhere, um, and we're trying to persuade people to worship the one true king, Jesus Christ. That's sort of our job as the church. And so when we promise to support the church in its worship, that's one of the things we're pledging to do, right, is that we're going to worship, we're going to give our all, to worship the one king, one true king, and we're going to try to convince each other to keep doing that and convince others to join in the fold. Um, now, the work of the church is to make disciples, what we read about in Matthew 28. And this means that all our decisions and all our dreams as a church are going to be filtered through that objective of making disciples. All right? Um, so all the choices that we, like when we're looking for a place to meet, we're looking for a place that's big enough that we can make disciples. Like we, we're not just going to take uh, a small boardroom because we'll never, we can't grow there, right? We're looking for a place where we can make, we're looking for a place that maybe has rooms where we can have Bible studies or nursery and those sort of things that we can make disciples, so the decisions that we're making as a church really are filtered through this idea of disciple-making. Um, and this means that um, the institutional mission of the church um, is going to be aimed at making disciples, but also we need each one of the congregation, each person, each one of you, to think about your life as someone who is wanting to do that that wants to do the work of the church. There's really two ways that you can approach church. You can come here to consume, or you can come here to give, to be a disciple and make disciples. Right? Far too many people in our culture today think about church mainly in terms of consumption. I'm coming here to get what I need, and then I'm going to go back home and bring the garage door down and hopefully make it with my family this week. Right, as opposed to I'm coming here to be recentered on Jesus Christ, so that I can go out and help people with the gospel. I can subvert idols. I can persuade people to to the one true one true King. That I can help my my brothers and sisters remain in Him to abide in Him. Uh, that's the the position that we're taking in terms of the, our, our work here in the church. I'm going to give you three implications to think about, and then I'm going to let you pray. We're going to make it. Um, one. This vow affirms that we should all be committed to gathering on Sundays for worship, okay? Um, this is not some obligation. I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you into coming here, all right? But um, if God's design for our church, if your God's design for you as a human being 
is to worship. Like, this is the place you need to be committed to to be reminded of that in your life and to be encouraged to go out and make disciples in the way that you live. Like it says here, God's design for us is to be renewed and weekly reminded of his rightful place in our lives. We need to be reminded of that. So that's the first thing, worship. Coming to worship matters. Second thing that this vow means, it teaches us that we're all ministers. Okay, look at me, two eyes, one buck. I know we're getting late. This is maybe the most important thing I'll tell you today, okay? Um, You're called to be a minister, You're called to do ministry in your life. That's not an option. That's what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to minister. Um, I can remember when I started working in campus ministry years ago. I went to Mercer, and uh, there was this group of students that began to be leaders in our ministry. And my job was just to convince them of one thing. I just And I tried to do this for, for like a year and a half. This was the constant thing I was telling you. Who's the campus minister at Mercer? And they would say, you are. And I'll be like, no, I'm not. I'm the campus pastor. You're the campus ministers. And when you start seeing that and believing that and living that, what we're doing here is going to really change the campus. And some of them started seeing it. And they started talking to people in their dorms. They started talking to their friends. They began to teach Bible studies. They began to just be good friends to people and become more involved in the campus in order to spread the gospel. And before you knew it, our little group of 25 grew to 250. Okay? Numbers aren't the best metric, but I'm just telling you, that's a tenth of the campus was involved in what we were doing because people were committed to being ministers of the gospel, all right? And so uh, Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Great Omission, and he says in The Great Omission that one of the greatest failures of the Christian church is that we've made making disciples optional. That we, we, we think it's important to be one, but not to make any. And yet, if you read the passage, Matthew 28 says the purpose of the church is to go make disciples in the world. It's our calling, what we're called to do. So think about that in your own life. What would it look like for you um, to begin to persuade people that don't know Jesus to know him? The people you work with, the people your kids play ball with, um, your neighbors, what does it begin to mean? What does it mean to slowly begin to show them the goodness of Jesus in your life? It might just mean that you just talk about what God has done for you in your life, not pressure them, <laughs> not push them, but just talk about what God has done for you in your life, and slowly begin to open the door to being able to have a relationship with them. Um, So ministry, you're called to be ministers. So what are some ways that folks can be involved in the worship and work of Christ the King? What does it mean to like practically keep this vow? I'm going to give you a few just to think about. Worship, remember, breathing in. Sunday gathering, attendance, and participation. If, you know, uh, I know there's not a lot of us here now, but like a lot of you already participate in what you're doing. And we're trying to make the worship service participatory. If you would like to read scripture or something like that, come and tell me. Like, we'd love to let, give you an opportunity to use your gifts in what we're doing. Um, join a small group. A lot of you are already in small groups. There's going to be more of them coming up soon. Um, so think about possibly making a discipleship group or some sort of fellowship group part of your life. And then just daily soul care. <gasps> breathing in the goodness of God. Breathing in God's word. Praying. Abiding practices that we've talked about. What it means to connect with Jesus on the day-to-day. 
listen to, uh, you know, rather than listen to news radio or being discipled by your Twitter feed, listen to a sermon on your way into work. You know, rather than listening to one more uh, commentator talk about how bad the Bulldogs are, listen to some good news that somebody may preach to you on your way into work. Use the opportunities that God has have. God has given you to draw near to him and to worship. And then work. Here are just a few things that we need help with around here. We need people to pray for our church badly. Keep praying for us. Keep praying that God would help us in a myriad of ways. Volunteering. Like, uh, we need people that would be willing to help with things, to give out bulletins or to set things up, to take things down, um, to play music, uh, to read, uh, to greet we have a, 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 a to lead a small group possibly in the future, to host a small group possibly in the future. There's so many ways and needs that we have uh, that you could volunteer and help. Um, showing hospitality to others, to one another. I see you doing this. I love the fact that I see you talking to each other, running to talk to people that are visiting. Keep doing that. That is the very heart of what we're trying to, to uh, instill in people as we think about uh, abiding. Um, bringing people I know we're not quite to the point where we're wide open and you can invite people, but you need to be starting to think about people you want to bring here. Uh, I mean, I'm praying all the time that our church will grow and that it will grow not by people getting on a website and looking up a reformed place to go, but by you inviting them, like by friends bringing them here, okay? Um, Helping with small groups, giving financially, so many of you have already given so much to us. We are so incredibly grateful for that. But we, you know, the first couple of months have been low in terms of what we normally have with giving. We need people to give financially to our church that it can keep going. Helping with small groups, hosting them and whatnot. Meeting with other people and new people. I've heard of some of you, uh, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but like one of the younger ones of you offered to meet with my daughter just to go have coffee with her. That is ministry. Just finding people that you don't know very well and asking to be a part of their life. To share what God's done for you in your life with them. And you, and like you just don't know how much that matters to people. Especially in this crazy, silly COVID place that we live where people are more isolated than they've ever been before and need friends. Okay. So please consider that. I, you know, and, and I, there's other things we can add. Meals. Thank you guys. You give meals to people when they, they really need meals. I've seen you step up and, and do those sort of other ways of serving. Uh, there's lots of ways to do this. But the main thing I want to communicate to you today is that by taking this vow, you're saying, I'm going to connect with Jesus and I'm going to make disciples. That's what you're saying. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. You know, they're the yin and yang here. <laughs> The beginning and the end and the beginning and the end over and over again. All right, any questions before we pray with each other? Anyone? There you go. All right, Uh, I'm glad y'all all have it figured out. Let me pray for us, okay? Uh, Father, thanks again for letting us uh, gather together and to listen a little bit about what it means to be a member here. I pray that folks would take these things seriously and they would not just leave with their doors shut in their mind, but they would go out and think a bit about how they fit, what it means to draw near to you day to day, but also what it means to serve and love this group. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, if you'll divide up into smaller groups and pray for just a few minutes, uh, I got two things here that you can pray for. One is that we'll learn to push back on idols and remind one another to connect with Jesus, and the other is that uh, we would uh, work for the kingdom. So please take a few minutes and do that.